0: Strong
1: voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world
2: sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political
3: order. I am here and now, and I speak my language, I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more
2: critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logic are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change
4: it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere.
0: What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people.
4: A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice.
5: Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you here, of course, from Mbanto Alice Springs in RD Country here in Central Australia from the Calm Radio Studios. We're also coming to you right across the country uh, through Vast Channel 911. A big good morning to you. And of course, uh, good morning as well if you're listening to us. Also, perhaps through our website online at karma.com.au. Today is the middle of the working week. It's Wednesday, the 11th of September. I'm your host, Kyle Darling. A big good morning to everyone right across the country today. Well, coming up on the show, uh, celebrations are continuing in the top-end community of Catherine with the Nimuluk Festival uh, running up until, I believe, the end of this week. They'll be, I think, concluding at the weekend. Uh, yesterday was actually the official 30th anniversary of the return of land to the Jawan people. And uh, following the conclusion of the events that took place yesterday, I did get to speak with a uh, traditional owner who uh, spoke about the return of land and, and how that's actually brought the community together. Also, we're going to hear about a formal agreement between the Northern Territory Government and Aboriginal communities to work together in order to improve uh, justice outcomes. And this has actually been described as a historical day for Aboriginal Territorians. Uh, The launch of the Aboriginal Justice Agreement will mean that uh, Aboriginal people from around the Territory will actually be given a voice to the Northern Territory Government on how to improve the justice system. So we're going to be hearing from... uh, Uh, Leanne Little this morning. Uh, Also, uh, we're going to be hearing about a group of uh, First Nations women who sang in Parliament House in Canberra and have used this opportunity to uh, express the need for treaties with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We're, of course, as well, going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and uh, Torres Strait Islander news from uh, right across the country. But first, we are going to go to a track and then we'll be right back with our first story.
3: What's up, you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio.
5: (laughs) Well, the launch of the Aboriginal Justice Agreement means that Aboriginal people from around the Territory have been given a voice to the Northern Territory Government on how to improve the justice system for their own people. Leanne Little is Director of the Aboriginal Justice Unit in the Northern Territory Attorney General's Department. Leanne is an Arendt woman, born and raised in Alice Springs, with academic qualifications in environmental science, law and management, but she believes her most important knowledge came from her grandmother and great-grandmother, who taught her traditional land management skills. Leanne was also the first Aboriginal policewoman in South Australia, where she worked for 11 years as a senior constable in remote and city police stations.
1: And welcome back to the
5: program. Well,
1: yesterday, an historic day for Aboriginal Territorians with the launch of the Aboriginal Justice Agreement. Uh, Aboriginal people from around the Northern Territory have been given a voice to the Territory Parliament on how to improve the justice system for their people. Joining us on the line, a very warm welcome. To the Director of the Aboriginal Justice Unit, uh, Leanne Little joins us. Leanne, welcome back to Karma. Thank you, Paul. Leanne, having worked in the Aboriginal Justice Unit and having a pretty good overall understanding of the plight of the First Nations peoples in the Territory, this must be a milestone as far as you're concerned in what, what is Included in the paper, but more importantly, the future for young Aboriginal kids in the Territory.
3: Absolutely, this is a watershed moment for the Northern Territory. It's a draft agreement. I've had 30 years' experience in this space as a police officer, a lawyer, and a policy maker, and this is the first time that we've got an evidence based, sound, robust, community focused. Um, position built within the 23 strategies of the draft agreement where we're dealing with some of the really complex issues to why aboriginal people are in negative contact with the criminal justice system.
1: Historically we know that the relationship between the mob and the the police and the justice system hasn't been great, but uh, can you give us a, a, an idea of just how bad?
3: We worked with agencies on the Australian Bureau of Statistics and criminologists and other experts in the area and The community had been telling us for some time while we did the 120 consultations that there were biases, there were discrepancies uh, and differences in the way that Aboriginal people were presented and managed through the justice system. And the findings in the accompanying pathways document certainly showcase those differences and how Aboriginal people are being treated differently and how the outcomes in matters are different because uh, of our race. The whole pathways document is based on statistical information. Some of the details around it show obviously that there's at least 85% of Aboriginal people In our prisons as adults who are Aboriginal, nearly 100% of the children in youth detention are Aboriginal. But even before people get to the uh, correction systems, we can see the disparities between... um, how people are dealt with it in first contact with the police and the use of discretion to the next stage, which uh, is through the court system. We can see the type of offences that Aboriginal people are being charged with, and the length of sentences given to uh, Aboriginal people and the differences in that space. But we're also seeing the differences in service delivery by agencies and how they're not meeting the needs of Aboriginal people, which I think is more important.
1: Leanne, as a former serving police officer, you, in community, you would have a good understanding of what happens once a young child becomes part of the system. It becomes a revolving door into the big house over many, many years. So obviously the action has to be taken at a very young age and if there is police intervention, the right choices and decisions have to be made at a very early age for young Aboriginal people
3: very clear that your retention in the justice system is made with that very first contact with police and from there on in it is very difficult for an Aboriginal person to turn around and come out of that. Now that's not a result of just the justice space, that's a result of the um, agencies in not delivering services that are needed to uh, address people's criminal um, risk factors being that in that they are made unavailable back in communities or not available where they're culturally competent, uh, where they, people use interpreters or cultural brokers or supports not followed up and more. So even people at risk... Uh, found to make it difficult um, to stay out of the system. In what we is what we've found in these documents,
1: Leanne. Again, just looking at the reality of uh, you know what might happen, situations that that have happened over the years. I mean, if we see young Aboriginal kids involved in mischief making or getting into trouble, that's the start of the process. If if we look at young white kids being involved at an early age, the response isn't always the same. Obviously. We have to ask the question, why is it different for one mob as compared to another?
3: And that's exactly what is portrayed in these documents as to, in the pathways document, why is it so and how can we address that fact? We found that because of the remoteness of Aboriginal kids returning back to communities, because of literacy levels, because of people's inability to access services that aren't culturally competent, to be able to navigate your way through, which non-Aboriginal people seem to do particularly well is proven to be difficult and that includes access to complaint systems so that when people find are, 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 are that they're not really receiving the services that they received, our capacity as Aboriginal people to take up and make a complaint is very low compared to that of non-Aboriginal people.
1: If we go back to the intervention and the aftermath of that, what role has that had to play?
3: That's had a huge point in eroding away or eliminating leadership in communities, the legacies of not only that policy of the intervention, but the um, tragedy of issues around the stolen generation has had impacts on people's parenting styles, discipline, ability to be heard, ability to make decisions and control communities' behaviours, all that at-risk in communities at the moment. And that's why we've come up with some of the strategies such as reintroducing community courts, establishing law and justice groups, retaining and restoring leadership, is critical to maintaining uh, law and order and functioning communities.
1: The discussion in the wider community about Koori courts and similar systems that operate, there seems to be this perception that the blackfella courts are more lenient. The aftermath of putting a young Aboriginal man or woman into a system that they can't get out of Obviously, keeping kids and young adults in community and being dealt with at that community level will be a massive saving, not, to, not just to Territorians, but again, from a national perspective.
3: That's right. The responsibility and accountability, if it's held within the community and it's visible to others that you've done wrong, and there's re- you know restitution in that space, so that you're actually uh, mowing auntie's lawn. Say so if you um, uh, try to break into her house or something like that. Uh, people told us that that worked um, much better to restore law and order. The people were safer, people were happier and healthier. And that's some of the recommendations that we've put in these strategies moving forward. So we know that when community participate in the decision-making process, there will be different outcomes that create the safer functioning communities uh, that we need so you know, so urgently back in the Territory.
1: Leanne, this is a, a national issue uh, when we look at the rates of incarceration of the First Nations peoples on a national perspective. And obviously, the terminologies that we're using, giving people uh, the capacity to take ownership. Their word, bureaucracies and systems have to change to allow that to happen.
3: That's right. And we know there's some systemic issues in those systems that need to accommodate not only the needs of Aboriginal territories, but the, the complexities and the issues around the demographics and geographics of the territory. People live in remote communities. The challenge shouldn't be put on the table as an issue as to why we can't deliver services, say, for Uh, grief and trauma counselling into communities or parenting programs uh, or more, we should just be able to accommodate the fact that we live in a remote area and uh, that we have to deliver services out to people in those areas.
1: The injection of funding into communities to deliver and provide these services would have an enormous impact on the well-being of communities. I mean, at the moment, it's coming from the top and filtering all of the way down through many non-Indigenous service delivery. I mean, if the money was put into communities at that grassroot level so that the, the money is, is there in the community and, and the community benefit, surely that's going to be, a, again, a massive save.
3: That's right. And with that money becomes uh, jobs for people, which... Uh, restores people's health and well-being, which um, prevents some of the pressure points that we know um, result in people having negative contact with the criminal justice system, not only as a defendant, but as a witness and a victim. Now, um, if we don't invest in communities and this agreement isn't a black-white issue, an Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal issue. This is a whole of territory issue that we need to fix. Everyone um, has uh, the opportunity to feed into the process and tell us what we need to do and what we've not got right in these 23 strategies and we're asking people to tell us what we have missed or what we need to do more of and we'll be doing another six months consultation out but unless there is front and centre Aboriginal ownership and partnering in this whole of government approach to change the status quo of where average people sit in the territory, um, then uh, nothing will change.
1: Governments come and governments go. Policies, reports come and go with governments. I mean, what is now the process of, of locking this in so whoever's in government uh, has to follow it through?
3: That's right. Currently, uh, this was a priority and a promise from the Labor government. Overall, all the um, changes of government, the incarceration rate hasn't changed. And I'm sure the uh, impact of some of those policies from the intervention and more haven't changed. Aboriginal people told us that it shouldn't be a political issue. It's actually a human rights issue that needs fixing, and it needs to be seen as that.
1: And again, from the uh, top tiers of government, we've seen uh, uh, from different governments, uh, while some want to talk the talk, I mean, actually delivering over a, a number of years to make a difference seems to have been a big issue for both political parties. I mean, they, they all say what they need to say, but making it change and actually putting a process in place so that Aboriginal community organisations can start delivering, that's another question.
3: That's right. I think what has happened before, from what we were told during the consultations and what we found during our research, is a lot of the changes that have happened and has had... An impact on Aboriginal Territorians have been a result of either a federal issues or good ideas or someone's um, thought bubble. But now what we have in front of us is sound evidence-based material to say, look, this is the current issues that we're dealing with, and this is the current research and data that shows this is where we need to go if we want to fix this. So it isn't just about looking at the figures of Aboriginal people in prison. It actually is tackling the issues of leadership and supporting and restoring leadership in communities. It's actually looking at people's access to services that impact on the justice system. I think, uh, from what I've researched, those two issues uh, the failure to draw attention and, and put attention on those two other issues, which are the aims of the agreement plus the incarceration, uh, recidivism, lower, lowering the rates, is, has had a significant impact on why we've got so many Aboriginal people in our prison system. We'll be coming out again to Aboriginal communities. We've already done 120 consultations to get to this point. The government's given this, uh, the attention that it needs and provided us with a six-month consultation process to go out and talk to Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people about this issue. We want to hear from everybody because this is too important an issue where we need to get it right, you know, I'm like many other people out there with children. I don't want my children to deal with what I've dealt with as an adult and what my parents have dealt with as parents living here in the territory. I want a different life for them. And I think these 23 strategies um, provide that footprint and template for us to move into a different direction than what we currently are.
5: That was Leanne Little there speaking with uh, Karma's Paul Wiles about the Aboriginal Justice Agreement. We're going to go to a break now and then we'll be right back with more Strong Voices. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here with me, Kyle Dowling. Great to have your company this morning. Well, on Tuesday, uh, hundreds gathered at the Nimeluk National Park to celebrate the 30th anniversary ceremony of land being handed back to the Jowan people of the Catherine region. The event was part of the uh, Nipaluk Festival currently taking place in Catherine. Uh, this year's event uh, featured a sharing of country exhibition, a concert in the Gorge, among other events, and will actually conclude with uh, community markets and a uh, story-sharing movie Night. The Chair of the Jowan Association and Traditional Owner Lisa Mumbin was one of the speakers during the ceremonies uh, and uh, I spoke with Miss Mumbin yesterday following the proceedings of the uh, 30th anniversary and began by getting her to explain a bit about uh, the Jowan Association.
2: The Jawan Association is an organisation that was set up to deliver service to its member but also it's like a mothership um, appointment to Parks Board and um, Liman Tours Board, which is our um, business that operates within the parks.
5: Now mm. today obviously a, a very significant and exciting day uh, you know we had celebrations thirty years on from from when Ja people first ha- handed back land. Can, can you explain a bit about what that initial vision actually was though of the of the elders for this actual land claim?
2: It was definitely a fight for for our land to be handed back to us as traditional owners and what today's celebration is reflecting on that but also celebrating what has taken place but also for the future of our generation to come and um, even for the community of Catherine wanted to include for this um, celebration and it's something that gives us a, an, an assurance is that with the celebration that acknowledging but also educating a lot of our young ones and and people that, that don't really know what took place in this park and in this site that we celebrated today.
5: What are those impacts that you've observed over the years, you know, as a result of the, the return of that country?
2: When we remember the time the lodgement and the fight took place... It does reflect on us and, you know, it does give us that bit of emotional feeling still and in the presence of our in that spiritual realm to celebrate their fight, but also our fight as well. You know, it's a journey that's been captured from the time the application been lodged and to now. It's significant in a way to just really acknowledge that and, um, you know, come together and be together. <laughs> It's an honoring part to it,
5: and do you think that's one of the amazing things that we've seen that was such a a long fought battle for the mob there you know it took over over ten years uh, to to you know get that land back uh, to to then have everyone coming together here thirty years later It must be amazing yeah
2: it is amazing and um you know the young ones you know are already picking up the event that really took place and hearing a lot of speeches as from myself to the other speakers, you know, guest speakers that were um, delivering speeches was just something everybody really acknowledged. It's just so significant to us and um, it makes us proud in who we are, but um, also helps many other people as well as we help, but, um, you know, we make them feel part of our celebration. And our fight.
5: How did those celebrations go today? Like you're saying, I imagine people would have been very happy and excited. Oh,
2: yeah, look, um, we had about nearly, uh, I'd say probably 150 to 200 people. I mean, there has been some vehicle issue with um, the community, the surrounding community on Jawa and Land, um, but look, um, uh, the the gathering today was well represented by not only traditional owner but members of Catherine Town and government reps and, and just visitors. So um, I'd say nearly 200 people.
5: When the actual, you know, lane came going forward, obviously there was that split within the community and there was even, you know, some very fierce and, and racist opposition to, to, you know, the mob getting country back. Do you think the fact that, you know, we can come to today and, and have, like you were saying, a, a great cross-section of the community coming together shows that this sort of thing can bring people together?
2: Definitely. There was a big impact, as you did ask me before, and the impact during the event that took place. And on the day today, as we celebrate on the 10th of September, 1989, is the time that actually brought the community together. And as we kind of took on the years with joint management of the park, slowly from then to now, actually really, you know, moved the town to come together and work together. So there has been some big change Although look, we still do um, get racism, You know, it, it's never going to stop. It's small as how you get on top of racism. So, Darwin um, was kind of driven that forward with the way we took our land claim in in winning that back.
5: And, and just finally, for you personally, what what has it meant today to be a part of these significant celebrations to to look thirty years on? What, what, what does that mean to you?
2: It means a lot, really. I'm kind of emotional. I, I have a mixed feeling, you know, as I stand and present myself in who I am, but um, definitely I, I, I stand and believe what my elders have taken me through and fought for me, given that they have la- laid the foundation right here for the better of all people.
5: That was the chair of the Jawan Association and uh, traditional owner Lisa Mumbin there. We're going to be uh, hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country very soon. But Before then, we are going to go to a track and then we'll be right back.
4: G'day folks, this is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio.
5: That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. It's now time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander News from Across the Country segment. I'm very happy to welcome uh, Karma's Paul Wiles into the studio. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, uh,
1: Carl, and good morning, listeners.
5: Well, Paul, let's start off with the story that you have for this morning in regards to a dispute over the removal of trees.
1: Yeah, well, this is uh, courtesy of the Australian and it's uh, down to Victoria. This has been a long running issue. some uh, trees, well not some trees, uh, trees that have uh, significant, uh, uh, great significance to the uh, local Aboriginal people down in Victoria um, are set to be bulldozed to make way for the Western Highway uh, or a duplication of the Western Highway. Um, The... Uh, protesters, uh, a group of up to uh, 500 protesters uh, led by uh, Jab Jabwarang El- Elder Sandra Onis and former Greens MP and Gunai Kurnai Gundichmara woman Lydia Thorpe marched on State Parliament on Tuesday yesterday calling on the government to, um, uh, to change the route of the uh, road and to save centuries old birthing trees that are sacred. Um, Meanwhile, according to the Australian Aboriginal bodies, including Aboriginal Victoria, the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations and the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council said they were satisfied all cultural heritage affected by the road duplication would be appropriately protected and managed and called on protesters to stop undermining the decision-making process and allow... The project to proceed. Uh, well, obviously, this didn't go down too well with the protesters. Uh, they set a camp up uh, between um, uh, Buwangor and Ararat uh, in June last year, staging an ongoing protest of the uh, Jabwarung Heritage Protection Embassy, which has continued to delay construction of the road. Uh, Ms. Thorpe told the Australian, uh, the told the rally that the loss of the 800-year-old jabwarung trees amounted to cultural genocide. Destroying the trees destroys us. Uh, she said, warning that it would also jeopardise treaty negotiations between traditional owner groups and the Victorian government. We will watch on with great interest.
5: Mm, definitely interesting to hear, the, I guess, a bit of a differencing in terms of opinions on, on, on I guess, how that would directly impact... Well, uh, the, the trees in that area,
1: and also uh, the uh, future of of the treaty. Um, you know, this is um, uh, the treaty is all about actually giving the First Nations peoples some say mm-hmm. and control and management. And we haven't even got to the treaty stage uh, being fully endorsed down in Victoria. Uh, and um, there's a um, a breakdown um, between Aboriginal organisations and grassroots um, community members. So um, Mm. I think, you know, historically, um, this has been one of the main issues um, that continues to uh, divide the First Nations peoples um, at many different levels. Um, But divide and conquer has always been uh, a a method used to uh, keep people where some people want them to be.
5: Mm. Well, on to our next story. I understand uh, we've got, we obviously talked a little bit about the Aboriginal flag yesterday. There's another story that's come out as well today. I understand. Uh,
1: this comes courtesy of ABC. Uh, John Berry, age 24, represents Australia at the uh, Global pageant of uh, Mr World Mr World in the Philippines which involved three works of charity activities and competitions uh, the Mr World competition opened with candidates modeling the, their national costumes uh, Mr Berry's costume was a long satin robe with a unique indigenous art painted onto it it included the aboriginal flags on the trim cuffs and back designed by uh, aboriginal artist Paul McCann um, Mr. Berry says he did come up against a bit of a roadblock with our flag rights issues, so he wasn't able to display one of the flags. Uh, it's understood that Mr. Berry was asked by organisers to remove the large flag from the back of the robe, uh, which also contained the message, Free the flag. Um, Mr. McCann Um, is an acrylic painter. He said, use of the Aboriginal flag is an emotional issue. Many Aboriginal people saw the flag as their national costume. I can see it from a a political point of view, he said, from the organiser's position, but they didn't quite know what the message was. So uh, the issue continues um, uh, around um, copyright and ownership of the flag and use of the flag. Um, And again, uh, it's an issue that will continue to um, upset many people, um, and um, I think you did mention if people want to hear the views of Harold Thomas, the interview is still available on the website and uh, on SoundCloud.
5: Yes, so if people do want to hear that sort of side of it as well, uh, Harold obviously explaining his point of view, I believe, still uh is the only person i think he's spoken to about the issue at the moment
1: well that's right um and uh, for those uh, hearing that particular interview i know there has been some criticism that we didn't didn't ask him tough questions uh, the interview isn't wasn't about that the interview was about allowing Harold Thomas to state his point of view which we allowed him to do uh if people disagree with that um we might approach Harold Thomas again to see if he wants to address some of those issues that have been raised since that initial interview. But um, again, that's up to Mr Thomas.
5: Mm. Well, on that note, Paul, thank you so much for uh, chatting with us here on Strong Voices. Thank you. We're going to go to a song now and then we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio.
5: (laughs) That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices, a uh, choir of young First Nations women called Spinifex Gum recently performed at Parliament House with a powerful song calling on government to give uh, Australia's First Peoples a voice to Parliament and enter into treaties with all of its First Nations groups. This report is from uh, The Wires' Rob Osborne. Dream, baby, dream.
4: Come on, dream, baby, dream. Come on, Andrew, baby, dream.
0: That was Indigenous youth choir Spinifex Gum and the Malia Choir performing in the Marble Hall at Parliament House yesterday as parliamentarians in both houses returned to Canberra from the winter break. The song... Dream Baby Dream, is a plea for a treaty and for an Indigenous voice to be enshrined in the Constitution. Vinyl copies of the song were presented to Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Ken Wyatt, and Labor Senator Patrick Dodson. The song is also the culmination of a novel method of online campaigning. Thomas Mayer is a prominent advocate for the Uluru Statement from the Heart and participated in the online process that contributed to the final recording. Here he is explaining how this aspect of the campaign was organised.
4: It was organised by Felix of Cat Empire and basically it's a matter of putting everybody's voices together. I mean, it's using new technology in a way that, uh, you know, does a petition that's different and inspiring. So I had a go, and I'm not a very good singer, but uh, that doesn't matter when your voice is joined up to uh, 11,000 at the moment it is. So yesterday they presented a um, a vinyl record of all of those voices singing together with Spinifex Gum and the Malia Choir.
0: Thomas Mayer says that the collaboration that was a feature of the Dream Baby Dream campaign reflects the process that produced the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which involved 12 regional consultative meetings around Australia. The recording follows the release of Spinifex Gum's first album, a collaborative exercise facilitated by Felix Riebel from Cat Empire. Here he is describing the approach they adopted.
1: We really wanted to invert what a choir traditionally does. We wanted to make a choir sound like a
5: lead, tough, pop vocal, um, but still sound lush and beautiful at the same time.
0: This version of Dream Baby Dream, originally a Bruce Springsteen song, contains verses translated into Indigenous language. This is another important element in the choral compositions. Here's a member of the choir explaining what she enjoys most about the project.
5: Language songs. I really like the language songs, especially the language songs where there's dance involved.
0: Sixteen-year-old Indigenous South Sea woman and choir member, Grace Miller, said at Parliament yesterday that it was overwhelming knowing that so many people support the Uluru Statement from the heart, and this was cause for optimism. I asked Thomas Mayer what impact he hopes the Canberra performance and the online participation will have.
4: Well, I'd just like to see many, many more voices join ours so that the government changes their point of view and more vigorously pursues a constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice. At the moment they're trying to separate constitutional recognition from the voice, but constitutional recognition that is less than a voice to parliament is not accepted by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. That has been our response a number of times now. It must be substantive reform.
0: Here's the rousing conclusion to the choir's impassioned performance in Parliament yesterday.